The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, just a reflection a little bit this morning on how we come into practice, how we step into the path of practice. Often we, um, many of us at least, seem to start through some kind of encounter with some kind of stress, suffering, some kind of sense of why is it so hard or isn't there a better way or something like that. So many of us have this sense of somebody must know a better way. And the Buddha phrased this by something like, does somebody out there know a way or two out of this suffering? And so um, we, uh, we have this question about our lives. Is it possible to live a life that has ease and peace? And um, that urge tends to, uh, for some of us at least, for some of us it may lead to a kind of collapse, that, that sense of it's just so hard or there's just so much suffering in the world, there's no way to do anything about it. Um, and so it may lead to a kind of collapse and uh, a, a just a disengagement. So uh, that, that can happen, but if we are motivated into a kind of a search, as the Buddha was in his, in his journey, motivated into a kind of a search, we may start looking for ways or looking for teachings. And so this is uh, the second part of how we end up stepping on a path of practice. And the, the, um, the, the Buddhist a path of practice begins with coming into um, contact with the teaching of what suffering is and how it is possible to be free of it. So it's this, um, that's, that statement, what is suffering and how is it possible to be free of it? How is it possible to be free of it? That's a kind of a very... Um, uh, ordinary way of describing the Four Noble Truths, which is a kind of a foundational teaching of the Buddha. And so this understanding of what suffering is, um, is uh, and that it is possible to, uh, as the Buddha found in his own journey, it is possible, he discovered for himself, it is possible to live a life that has ease, that has peace. And this doesn't necessarily mean that the entire world is in peace, but that it means our relationship to the world is one of non-contentiousness, is one of um, um, maybe kind of being in alignment with what is actually happening as opposed to resistance to what is happening. And through that, openness to what's going on, um, a path of non-suffering in the Buddhist understanding is kind of a path of um, uh, 
skillful engagement rather than aversive resistance or holding on to things that we think will uh, make us happy. So it's kind of this, this, uh, it's, it's, it's a very, in, in many ways, it's this, this understanding that, that about what suffering is and uh, about what freedom from suffering means is very counterintuitive because so much of our way of navigating the world, the way of trying to find happiness, the way of trying to find ease and peace in our world has been motivated by everything that we've learned, everything that uh, we've been taught, um, how to find happiness tends to be get what you want, get rid of what you don't like, and that's the way to find happiness. And getting what you want, getting rid of what you don't like also includes things like having people think about you the way you'd like them to think about you, uh, having uh, kinds of states of mind that we like, um, uh, as well as material things. And so it's a, it's, it's a broader picture. Uh, so, you know, some people right now are very happy with the political situation. Some people are very unhappy with the political situation. And so the, the, um, the possibility exists of having a heart that's not in constriction around what's happening out there. And in that non-constrictedness can find a way to navigate through the world with an open heart rather than a closed heart. And so this is, this is the possibility of freedom. And the, 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 so the Buddha said this is possible, and yet to step on this path, the very first part of stepping on this path really is this orientation of an understanding of what, and we, we, um, in, the, in the Buddhist teachings, this is the first factor of the Eightfold Path, the, the path that describes how we might become free from this constricted heart. Um, And the first step is what's called wise view or wise understanding. And in this, uh, this understanding that is at the head of this, that helps us to step onto this path, is an understanding about what suffering is. So it seems kind of circular in a way. And yet, this is what this understanding, even at the level of hearing it and a little bit of reflection on it, this understanding of that, that it is possible to be free of the kind of suffering that is a result of our hearts being constricted and tight, our hearts being in resistance to what is here. In a, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a, an interesting way, when our hearts are not in resistance to what is here, we are more able to bring skillful change to the world. When we're in resistance to what's here, we're more combating in the way that we're used to, with aversion and hatred and clinging, as opposed to uh, engaging through compassion, kindness, patience, love, wisdom. And so this is the possibility that is pointed to. So wise view um, you know, begins our path. Uh, and often when we um, 
you know, we start with some kind of encounter with suffering, we might be looking for some kind of teaching, some kind of way or two out of that suffering. And we may come in contact with this, this teaching, this Buddhist teaching. And for me, this happened a couple of times, actually. The first time it happened, I was in my 20s when I heard about this teaching, and it just did not land. Uh, I don't think I had had enough suffering for it to really land. When I was in my mid-30s, I heard it again. Somebody sent me a book, and um, the perspective that was offered of, um, you know, what what does it mean to to look at our suffering uh, was very counterintuitive to me, but just hearing that, so just partly, partly for me, it was, so hearing that teaching and having tried just about everything I could to find a way to happiness and none of it had worked, it was like I was willing to try something that a friend had said, hey, this book has really helped me. Why don't you see if, if you know, this, this would work for you? So this is how our path begins. The, we hear some teaching. We hear some wisdom. And in the, in the Buddhist um, uh, framing of that wisdom, it is some wisdom about suffering. We hear some wisdom around the teaching of suffering. And often, in my case, in this, this early time, it was a teaching around what is it that... Um, that it's useful, that the, the little tiny bit of wisdom that I, I gathered in that book was something like, it might be useful rather than either repressing your, your uh, pain or acting on your pain, to hold that pain and allow it to be there and see what happens. That was very counterintuitive to me. That did not make a lot of sense. But because I had tried other things, I was willing to try that. I was willing to step into that. And so this is how our path begins. The, the wisdom that's offered in the Buddhist teachings, this wise view, it begins with hearing it. Somebody sends us a book. We hear a Dharma talk. We um, hear something on the radio. We get curious. We hear a podcast, something. We hear something that intrigues us. Something different, something that catches our attention. Perhaps it speaks to us in a certain way because we're in a place where our minds are more receptive to hearing about suffering. That was the case for me. At a certain point, my mind was more receptive to hearing a different model around suffering. And so we hear something. This is the first aspect of wisdom in the... In the um, Texts it talks about there's three levels of wisdom. And the first level is just this hearing. We hear something. We hear a teaching. We read something. So we take in information. That's not enough to, d- to do much for us, usually. Usually we have to take the second step, which at the second step of wisdom, it, it shifts from just being kind of information we're passively taking in to information we start engaging with. So we start thinking about it. We start reflecting on it. Maybe we, at a certain point in that reflection, think, like I thought, for instance, well, I don't know how this will work, but I'm willing to try. <laughs> 
For others, it may make more sense. You know, for me, it, would just, it was just so counterintuitive. But for somebody else, it may be, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so there's a little bit of reflection on what's offered, a little bit of, of teaching reflection, on, a little bit of reflection inner, inwardly on what has been offered through the teachings. And so through that reflection, this is the second kind of wisdom that we begin to use our minds, our thoughts, to engage with these teachings. We may question them, massage them, think about them. And at a certain point, at the same level of, um, of wisdom, is where we actually choose to begin. We choose to step into some kind of engagement. So in the Buddhist path, in this Eightfold Path, it's a path of engagement. It is not a path of passive learning. Because the, there's one famous um, teaching from the Dhammapada, the Buddha says something like, the Buddhas just point the way. It is up to you to follow the path. And so this path analogy is really um, appropriate in a way. And it, it's like the Buddha says, yeah, there's this path that you can follow. And so it's just like somebody saying, yeah, if you want to climb to the top of that mountain, you need to follow this path. You need to like, you know, take this path. And here it gets a little rocky and bumpy and it's a little hard. You might lose the trail, but there are markers on the trail. So follow those painted marks on the rocks and you climb up there. And, and, and it, you know, somebody gives you some instructions. But in order to get to that top of the mountain, you can't just sit there thinking about the instructions. You have to walk on the path. And so the Eightfold Path is like that. So this engagement with the wisdom is the next piece. So there's the, the, the hearing it, reflecting on it, and beginning an engagement. Stepping onto the path with some action. And from that partly because of the orientation of stepping on the path, because we've gotten instructions that help us to follow the path, then we begin, um, and it's little by little in my experience, it's little tastes, we begin to taste some of the truth or some of the, um, the sense of the freedom that is possible the ease of heart that's possible in the midst of something that seems really difficult, maybe what happens one time is that we see that we're able to, to meet somebody who really shares a very different opinion than we do. And we're able to be um, not conflicted or, or angry about it, but more, tell me more about that. And we see, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't, you know, make any difference externally, but we see internally that we can navigate the world in a different way. And we feel that. We feel the difference. In my experience, this, this, this is the third level of wisdom is where we're actually um, touching into the truth that is offered in those teachings experientially. So we taste that wisdom for ourselves. And it's, it's got a very um, you know, clear sense in our hearts. When our hearts have that feeling of being released from 
that constricted feeling. There's something in our system that intuitively understands this is the way. This is helpful. And so this begins to point to um, that, that feeling or that kind of release from that constricted quality begins to point to one of the key teachings un, uh, that comes under the heading of wise view. There are several ways to talk about wise view. Uh, the Buddhist texts give different ways into exploring it. Today I'm going to talk about it from the perspective of um, what is helpful in terms of what leads us towards ease, peace, unconstrictedness. And not, not an ease or peace that is just kind of passive, but an active, engaged peace. And then, so what is helpful and what is not helpful? So this is a, a simple kind of looking at what goes on in our actions and in our motivations of those actions. When we uh, do certain things and are motivated by certain kinds of mind states, it will tend to lead us towards suffering. And other mind states, other things that we might engage in, will tend to lead us towards happiness. So this is a, th- this teaching, um, helpful, unhelpful, what's helpful, what's unhelpful. Sometimes it's uh, termed what's skillful, what's unskillful. Sometimes it's termed what's wholesome, what's unwholesome. These are three different translations that encapsulate different flavors and different aspects of one, one set of terms in the, in the Buddhist language. Uh, kusala and akusala. Skillful, kusala, akusala, unskillful. So this is, this is a, a foundational understanding that's helpful to us in stepping onto the path. What is helpful in terms of, if we want to move in the direction of a peaceful heart, of a heart that is not constricted, not, not in contention, then these are things that will help and these are things that will get in the way. So the Buddha's discovery of what's skillful and unskillful, I would term very much a discovery. It's very like um, discovering a scientific law. When um, Newton articulated the law of gravity, he didn't create it. He just articulated something that was naturally happening in the world. You know, we cannot fight the law of gravity. I can't, just because I want to, say, I'm going to put this in the air. It doesn't work. And so we can't fight these natural laws. And so the Buddha's discovery of this skillful, unskillful uh, peace is a discovery of the nature of our of our minds basically and this law is termed the law of karma 
And so this, um, you know, the, the, it, it's a natural, it's a natural law, like the law of gravity. The Buddha didn't make it up. He discovered through looking in his own experience that when we engage in certain actions and certain motivations of those actions, we will continue to suffer if we uh, engage in different uh, direction. It heads us in a different direction towards freedom, towards ease, towards peace. So in some ways I think of this um, law, this law or the, the nature of our minds, the description of this, the nature of our minds. The, the, the Buddha taught what he s- is, um, discovered is that when our minds are motivated by greed, by aversion, by delusion, confusion, that will tend to reinforce greed, aversion, and delusion. And that is where the suffering comes from. And so some of this, and then on the other side, it's the opposite of those, or the absence of those, actually. Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion is what leads us in the direction of happiness. So how does this work as a natural law? Um, um, So partly what we need to begin to to see and the the path of practice as we engage helps us to start to see this when we look at our experience with mindfulness. As that, that very first instruction I gleaned out of that book that my friend sent me. What might it be, rather than to repress your pain or act out on your pain, to hold it and know that it's happening? What, what, so being mindful of that, that's, that's the, one of the aspects of the Eightfold Path. So being mindful of our, of our, um, what's happening, of our pain. Then what we start to see is that when we are experiencing states of mind that are like rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion, those experiences in the present moment are painful. They are suffering. Greed is painful in the present moment. Wanting is painful. The sense of like, I need to keep, gimme, 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 that, that kind of uh, movement. It's not intuitively obvious necessarily that greed is painful because when we are kind of motivated by greed, acting on greed, <laughs> we are kind of projecting into the future, thinking about the thing we're going to get. And that is that state that our mind creates about some projected future will be happy, pleasant when I get that thing, that's, that's, that's kind of pleasant. You know, that, that idea that I'll get that thing is pleasant. And so in that um, veneer of pleasant idea in the mind about some possible future, we do not see that the, um, the greed the internal greed is 
already suffering. So as soon as greed springs up, there's a feeling of lack. And sometimes greed springs up without an object. It can be kind of um, curious, but this is what acting on greed over and over again does for us. So we act on greed, we get something that we want. You know, oh, that felt pretty good to get that thing that I want. In that moment of getting what I want, there's a, there's a sense of, yeah, figured it out, got it, that feels pretty good. But the nature, so another aspect of the nature of, of experience is that things are impermanent, unreliable. And so wherever we've landed there, as, as, as that's happy-making, it doesn't last very long. You know, it might last a few hours, it might last a few seconds, it might last a few days or weeks. But it will not last. And when it ends, and sometimes what happens too, this is an interesting one to notice, is sometimes what happens is that we've still got the thing, you know, we've got some great thing that we, we like, you know, we've still got the thing. But we start seeing the drawbacks around it, you know, or, you know, the, 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 the difficulty of keeping it. Or it just loses its luster. So we don't have that same level of hit of happiness anymore. And so we have a feeling that, hmm, I was happier before. When did I get that happiness? Well, it was when I got something that I wanted. So what can I want to want? This actually happens to us a lot. And this is why greed reinforces greed. And unwittingly, in acting on greed, we are reinforcing something that actually in the present moment, in the moment, creates a feeling of dissatisfaction. So, That's one side, and it's a very similar situation scenario on the aversive side, except it's usually a little more easy to tell that aversion is painful. You know, it's it's a little easier to recognize that anger hurts, although in my own experience it was was quite uh, a revelation to realize that my mind was holding on to that anger, willing to kind of be miserable myself in order to make somebody more miserable than me. So that, you know, that kind of weird, it was kind of a weird idea of how somehow this this anger was making me feel better. It was all in my mind. And so the the understanding again around what, what does this anger do? When we actually feel into it in the moment, we see how much it hurts here and now. When we feel into aversion in the moment, it hurts here and now. Delusion's a little harder to see. But essentially, you know, one, one way into understanding delusion is to begin to um, recognize the kind of the delusion that's embedded in greed and aversion. So there's, there's the, um, you know, with greed, the, the, the greed itself, we could say that the, the, the movement of greed is to get something pleasant. The movement of aversion is to get rid of something that's unpleasant. And um, that, that is motivated, the whole mind that wants to do that is motivated by a belief. 
that is a confused belief that having that thing or getting rid of that situation will make me happy. And in our minds, it will make me happy kind of enduringly. You know, we may not, we may not really know that, but the delusion kind of contains that, that belief that, oh, I get that thing, I'll be able to relax, I'll be okay. And so there's this kind of, the, the delusion is that having the thing will make me happy. Or getting rid of the thing will make me happy. So this uh, understanding of greed, aversion, delusion being this kind of direction that kind of keeps us basically caught on a spiral or a cycle of greed, aversion, and delusion. And when we start to look at that experience directly, we see that greed, aversion, delusion, again, this kind of feeling in our system What does greed feel like internally? It feels constricted. It feels kind of off-kilter. It may feel kind of tilted. Aversion often has either a feeling of lashing out with kind of anger or pulling back with fear. It's it's got a very tight feeling. Sometimes I felt barricaded. Almost, yeah, so sometimes aversion can have this kind of very um, uh, braced or... um, um, Kind of like I had walls around me, you know, kind of that that kind of sense of being walled up. So the 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 quality of the mind when it's experiencing that, when we when we touch into that, we feel that experience of ah, this feels painful. This is suffering. And that is the beginning of real understanding. That first understanding of this is suffering, not from the perspective of like, okay, what do I need to do to fix this or get rid of this, but more just like, wow, I see this mind is doing this, making this anger at someone, and it's suffering over this. For me, that was a big um, recognition. It's like, oh, wow. I thought this was like going to help me, but it actually hurts. And it it was kind of like a duh kind of, uh, you know, insight. But it was, it just framed it in my mind in in a different way. Helped me to understand that the, the, the delusion that was underneath that anger was misguiding me, was telling me bad information was guiding me in a wrong way. So the, um, the, the, the body or the system, as we open to our experience with mindfulness, our, our system begins to help us to understand how this natural law works. How this natural law of karma where... Basically, the, the one statement of the, of the law of karma, I'll read this. It, it's kind of complex here, the way this is phrased, but it's so concise, I want to read it and then I'll unpack it a little bit. The capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically appropriate result. 
And so our intentional actions are actions that happen based on our internal motivations. And so that's um, all, everything that we do, except for certain, like, you know, like, like if somebody um, hits your knee with the, in just the right spot, you know, that's, that's not an intentional reflex. That's a reflex action. It's not something that you, your mind is, is doing because it wants to act. It's, it's just a reflex. But the vast majority of our actions of body, of speech, of mind, have an intention associated with them. There's some reason why we're doing them. So there's a reason why we say what we say. There's a reason why we do what we do. And that reason or that motivation is the, the key to this law of karma. So the, uh, when the motivations of our actions are based in greed, aversion, and delusion, when that's the motivation of our actions, then what tends to follow is more suffering. It tends to, and it's, it's but partly, it, it, it's what, what happens is that the, well, there's a statement, another way to kind of understand this more in a, in a very um, um, kind of almost neutral way. Maybe this is the way to really frame this law as just a neutral law. Whatever one frequently ponders becomes the inclination of the mind. In neuropsychology, uh, this is framed as neurons that fire together, wire together. Something like that. That, you know, whenever we do something over and over again, that becomes what our mind continues to do. Our minds kind of have this uh, habituating kind of quality that when we do something a lot, it gets easier to do. And so this, the Buddha phrased this as whatever one frequently ponders becomes the inclination of the mind. If we frequently ponder and frequently engage with greed, aversion, and delusion, that becomes the inclination of the mind to engage with more greed, aversion, and delusion. And what is the experience of greed, aversion, and delusion? It's suffering. It's that constricted quality. So it's, this is the naturalness of this law, that when we engage with greed, aversion, and delusion, that will tend to be what happens more and more. And the experience of that at some point will really catch up with us. And maybe this is when it hits the level for us of, oh, I'm suffering. You know, this is not working, as it did for me in my, in my late 30s. It's like, oh, this is whatever I've been doing. This is not working for me. So that um, the capacity of our intentional actions to produce an ethically, maybe rather than appropriate, we could say an ethically congruent result. It's like whenever we engage with actions out of greed, aversion, and delusion, we'll tend to get more greed, aversion, and delusion. That is that tends to produce more suffering. If we engage out of non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion, or to put it more positively, um, out of generosity, out of love, and out of wisdom, that tends to produce more generosity, love, and wisdom 
which the experience of that is the very opposite of that constrictedness. It is a kind of a feeling of the heart resonating with the world. And our system, again, this is kind of the way in which I think of it as a natural law, our system understands, especially when we see this with mindfulness, see that quality of love and generosity and wisdom, when we see that kind of release, sometimes it it feels more like a release from that constrictedness. We feel that quality of constrictedness release. And our system at a very deep level understands, like as I said earlier, this is a, this is this is a better way. And so our our system, uh, Gill at one point a long time ago said something like we have a biological imperative to freedom. A biological imperative to non suffering. And I think this is because of the way our bodies, our minds are kind of wired. Because when we experience greed, aversion, and delusion with mindfulness, when we experience greed, aversion, and delusion without mindfulness, we're caught by the delusion of greed, aversion, and delusion and think it's going to do something for us. And we're, we're really missing the direct experience of what's actually happening in this present moment of the suffering of it. So if we, uh, if we have the mindfulness and feel into that experience, our system understands this constricted quality does not lead towards a deeper well-being, a deeper kind of happiness. And this other experience of the release of that, our system understands that way lies more ease and peace. And also as we, as we explore this and, and see it, we see that, that that release from the constrictedness doesn't mean that we like, just sit down and give up. In fact, just the opposite. We're more likely to engage in the world with a, a kindness and a wisdom and a compassion. I think of the Buddha's life really as an example of this. The story of the Buddha's awakening was something around this piece because when he first got a, first kind of understood this, came to this understanding in his own heart and mind and, and recognized at a very deep level the possibility of freedom. It is said, and I don't know how we know this, but, you know, it is said... <laughs> This is kind of the mythology of of, uh, Buddhism, perhaps. Uh, It is said that he had the thought, wow, this is profound, and this is subtle. This understanding is very subtle. Nobody is going to get it if I try to teach this. So that would be really vexing if nobody got it. So why don't I just sit here under this tree and sit in this peace? And then he had another thought <laughs> that was, well, so, and, and this, is, this is very paraphrased. 
A lot of people probably won't get it, but there are some that will. So let me try to teach this to some people. And he thought about some of the people that he had been um, practicing with and uh, thought, maybe they'll get it. And so he went and searched out these five companions that he had been practicing with. And they understood. They understood what he was saying. They saw their minds were very ready to see this kind of shift of perspective around what suffering is. So the Buddha spent 45 years walking around India, talking to people, teaching. He didn't just sit in some cave. So this is a model. He talked to kings, he talked to lepers, he talked to people in their daily lives, he talked to people who ordained with him. He tried to stop wars. He tried, he did stop a mass murderer. So he engaged. He was very active. And so this path that he's teaching is not a passive path. When the heart is open, we can engage for wholesome, uh, the movement in, a, in the wholesome direction, this skillful direction, this kusala direction. So there's a lot more to say about karma, but I want to um, just take some time and see if there's any questions or comments. And I'll follow up a little more about karma next time, a little more of the like actual specific teaching on karma. So any comments or questions? Yeah. I don't mean this to be semantic, but it, my aversion, anger, often feels unintentional. Mm-hmm. That is, it happens so fast that it's much like the knee being yeah. <laughs> hit in the front with a little rubber hammer. Yep. So should I? How should I understand uh, that? Yeah, this is that a, unintentional. It's a great question. I'm so glad you you asked this. So the 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 term intention, you know, we often think of as me meaning something like, I decide. Like right now, I can decide whether or not to pick up this glass. You know, so there's a kind of a sense of me doing something. The intention that's pointed to here in, the, um, in this understanding is it's kind of the, um, the motivations of our minds that happen cumulatively. So... Um, We have practiced, we have engaged myself, I'd engaged in a lot of practicing anger before I met this path. And so again, you know, it's like that tended to be what arose. But part of what the the intention part is, or let's see if there's another word there. 
It's hard to think of a word for that. Motivation, perhaps. Sometimes we can understand motivation as being something that's more deeper rather than me choosing it. So maybe motivation, you know, the motivation there. Um, It's kind of a broader sense of where things are coming from underneath. Um, Those motivations have been um, conditioned over and over again. And so that's what tends to happen. And it feels so fast, so reflexive, because it has been so habitually conditioned. So it is, so that the difference between the the reflexive action and the um, the kind of the intention, the the, the motivation there, uh, when we're not really, um, uh, when we're not able to be mindful, the uh, the the system seems to respond in this very reflexive way. It feels very reflexive. But the possibility, that so the difference here is that no matter how mindful you are, you will not be able to stop that knee from jerking. <laughs> you know, it's like that, that is just biology. You know, that is, is just hardwired. In the, in the mental realm, the possibility exists for, and this is the way it kind of unfolds, so the mind, in my case, certainly, years of practicing anger. Years of doing the same thing with anger, over and over again. One day, I got a book. I heard this teaching. So that was a condition. You know, that was something that came in, like, I didn't make it happen. And I, you know, a friend of mine participated in this, you know, sending me the book. I did read the book. I did engage with that teaching. Um, and in that reading and engaging, it's like, okay, well, there's a different possibility. So that's new condition that's put into the mind. A little bit of wisdom put into the mind in the face of this hugely, um, you know, conditioned phenomenon <laughs> of, the, of, the, of the anger. And yet, that little bit of information, that little bit of wisdom may give us the possibility of doing something different. So maybe the anger arises, but we get curious about the experience instead of doing our habitual acting on it. And that's the beginning of its transformation. And it is a slow transformation. No kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And my follow-up is that I don't know if you see that, saw it this way, but my anger, the, the one that comes so fast that I seem yet unable to catch it mindfully, also Are feels, you acting by the time you know that it's happened? Are you already taking physical or verbal action? Yes, verbal. Okay, okay verbal. Typically okay. verbal. Okay. And, it's, and it feels powerful. Yeah. It's very. And that's, and that's the drug that keeps yes. <laughs> me going. Yeah, and that actually, I did see that really clearly at one point. How the the kind of the initial hit of that anger is, um, it's, it, there's a feeling of power, a feeling of control, and that's the hook. 
And yet very quickly we also see, I mean, so part of, part of the work might be to recognize and reflect on, okay, so if you're already speaking, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of our work might be to, um, you know, recognize the results. You've stepped into that action. What happens? So we can begin to contemplate the drawbacks of that. Begin to recognize the suffering that happens. And so often what happens when we, you know, aren't really in this process is that we might, you know, oh, well, I said that thing. Well, I didn't have any control. That's just me and, you know, anything that the other person's experiencing, well, they deserve that anyway, you know. So if we're going in that direction, we are not interested in contemplating the suffering that happened, both for ourselves and for the other. So to, to see that, and wherever you are in the process when you wake up, what's happening there? You know, you've already spoken, but in that moment, you know, if it's just after it, you may be able to um, say something immediately. It's like, whoops. <laughs> or come back and uh, make amends later. Or, um, but wherever you are in the process, bringing mindfulness to that is how it begins to shift. Mindfulness and some of this interest in, in that, this, what is the suffering there? You know, and to, to see that hook, to see that power, you know, there is that quality of, of hooked there. And I was, I was kind of humbled by seeing that. It's like, oh, no wonder this is really the, this is the drug, as you say, this is the drug that makes this so potent. But then we see, you know, it's kind of a little bit of addictive almost, you know, and, and how danger, dangerous it can be. So we, we have to really re-educate ourselves around that. Yeah. Yeah. And make sure the, the, the mic is on. There's a button on the side. Well, first of all, Thank you so much. I think I came to the right session. Um, the questions that you asked, like what suffering is, it's definitely the intention why I came to this center. Uh, so thank you. Mm, you're welcome. My question is, how, do, how, how can I use mindfulness with the anger, the aversion? Um, I don't know how long... I don't know if anger can, can have a term in terms of how long has it been, but for me, it's been over a long time. Yeah. Is it a specific situation that you're angry about? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, how I, I just want to get, a, get some insight in terms of how I can use mindfulness to, yeah. to help dissolve the anger and, and um, being able to allow forgiveness. So um, there, there's a short time here of a, you know a couple minutes. But I'll say a couple things, but what I'll do too is to point you to um, if you're familiar with Audio Dharma. The, the so the so we have a I think you've seen our website. You mentioned that you'd seen our website. On our website, there's a link to everything we do here. We're recording this, so everything is recorded. Um, I've given several talks about how I worked with anger. So you can look on that website. Um, you go to our website and then click, click the link on Audio Dharma, which is just on the navigation bar, and you'll get to the entire 
like library of talks that have been recorded here. There's a search box. You could maybe type in anger or working with anger. You'll get a bunch of talks there to listen to. So there's a lot out there to support you in that. Um, It's possible right now, I'll just say, kind of the place I started, the very first place I started was... um, just to recognize, okay, this is this is going to be probably a, a, a long haul, but um, that book that I, I, I got sent, the very first thing that I did was just in daily life for the first maybe two or three months of my practice, the only practice I did around anger was just committing to recognizing when it happened and just noticing it and seeing what was there, just in a simple way. It's like, what is it like to be angry? What is it like to be a human being that's angry? And I very quickly saw that it hurt. <laughs> and then, you know, then what the other powerful piece of it was that in that seeing, oh, this is, this is anger arising. I often could see that in the moments before I had been so hooked by the anger that I was basically not being attentive to what was around me. I was kind of frozen in my little world of anger. And when that awareness of anger arose, it gave me the possibility to re-engage so I had the possibility in that moment to say, okay, well, I don't know what to do about this anger so much, but you know, I'm in the midst of this activity, so I guess I just go back to work or whatever I was doing. And so not to repress the anger at that point, but just kind of like, yep, there it is, I see you, and I guess I just continue with my day as best I can. That simple practice that I did had very transformative effects. So that is where I would start, even in daily life. Just commit yourself to, and and, and for me it started, you know, in a very simple way. It's like, you know, maybe just once or twice a day I would notice it. But then as time went on, I began seeing subtler kind of manifestations of it. So I could see just little, like, whoo, a little flash of irritation around it. And I also began seeing that over time, seeing more of those, actually meant that I was seeing less of the really big ones. So I could see over the course of those few months that there had been a a major shift around the number of times I was in that just inner world of being like wrapped in the anger, just like non-functional. So I could see that there was some movement in that direction. So that's where I'd encourage you to start. And then I'd also encourage you to listen to some of those instructions and the on the audio dharma. And now it's time to stop. So thank you.